Hey, it's David Greenwald. Welcome back to Pretty Little Grown Men. Hi, it's Dom Sinicola. Welcome. Before we get going on whatever the hell we're going to talk about this week, <laughs> uh, we have yeah. no agenda. I have to tell the really dorky story of the fact that you're listening to a podcast on microphones, which we had the last couple weeks. Yeah. Uh, but because I am not a recording engineer, I didn't realize that these dynamic microphones don't need phantom power. So I was pressing a button on my magical box, which makes this all happen, which is creating static. And I thought we had a bad USB cable, but we mm -hmm. didn't. It was just me being dumb. So anyway, this should be our most beautiful sounding podcast yet. Yeah, you can probably uh, find the travails of Dave's sound journey on <laughs> on his Twitter. Uh, do you want to do you want to plug uh, any of the fine technical folks who helped you out or who who built the equipment that we are currently using? I actually do um, because we're using a Focusrite Sapphire USB six interface. Uh, and I emailed the Focusrite people, and I was like, help, what's going on? And they were like, we'll send you a new USB cable for free, which I thought was very generous of them. So thank you, Focusrite. For, Thanks, Focusrite. For enabling this podcasting magic. We love you. Uh, now that we're, uh, since we're already doing some plugs, um, I noticed last week <laughs> that we were like, we're going to start plugging things from the beginning, uh, and then we just don't. But we are drinking beers. Um it's kind of whatever is in my fridge, because uh, um, we're actually recording in my basement now, which my girlfriend and I finally cleaned. Um, it's it actually looks like it could be a place to hang out and or stay if you want. If you want to come stay in Portland, both Dave and I have places where you can sleep. It's true. So any big fans, we'll give you a, air mattresses. The pretty little grown men tour. Um, so I'm drinking a full sale IPA, which I've plugged on this program before by the great folks over at Full Sail out of Hood River, Oregon. Um, this is still one of my favorite IPAs. I haven't really had it that much often, probably because I kind of burned out on it. Um, <clears throat> but uh, very drinkable uh, and um, always a mainstay. It's usually cheap. No matter where you go to buy it, it's usually the, the cheaper six-pack you'll find in Portland. Dave, what are you drinking? This is a... Uh... Ten barrel Sinistore with a funny like slashy thing through the O to be heavy metal. Uh, it's a zero for ten. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> well it's a Sinistore ten something black ale. Uh, it's good. I'm enjoying it. Excellent. I'm glad that you're drinking it because I didn't want it. Um, okay, so uh, we've talked about a few things that we could cover, um, and probably most likely um, some TV shows that we've been watching lately. Uh, I do want to uh, encourage you to tune in next episode when I think that we're going to review some Pretty Little, pretty little Liars actor-based uh, media. I have currently sitting in front of me a gift that Dave brought from his work. It is Lucy Hale's Road Between. Yeah, her, her debut country album. Uh and she's looking pretty cute on uh, on on the on the foldout. She's just sort of walking through some fields. Um, I haven't listened to any of her songs before, uh, although this is on a Nashville-based label. As oh, it's it's a country album. Yeah. Oh, okay. You've listened to it. I've just heard the single. Oh, okay. Um, oh, well, it's definitely a country album because the first person that she thanks is who do you think? Is it God? It's God. Okay. 
Yeah. Lucy Hale. Thanking God. Um, and also, I was sent a link. I have not watched it yet to a horror movie coming out. I'm not sure if it's coming out this month or next month, but starring Troyan. Uh, it's called Martyrs, which I believe it's a remake of a European horror film, maybe French. Uh, which, if I, which I've never seen because I'm not like a huge, huge uh, horror geek or anything. But from what I've heard, I think the original Martyrs is considered one of the more um, graphic horror movies ever made. So I'd be curious to see how this translates, and uh, you know if hor- if uh, Troyan's good in it, and if she's totally game for all the, the gross stuff that m- may or may not be happening to her. Well, it feels like a natural fit to have someone from Pretty Little Liars in like an actual horror movie mm-hmm. after six years of like this a very strange ABC family version of a horror movie. Well, yeah, Pretty Little Liars is basically like the I know what you did last summer. It's like the '90s teen slasher movie right so and now you know yeah it's it's very fitting that that she'll move into a role that is a bit more on par with the horror zeitgeist which is like you know hostile type shocking horror um you know gross special effects and disgusting things that make you cringe Mm -hmm. um which i'm not exactly a big fan of I think that I appreciate that stuff like that exists, um, but I've always had a very uh, strange relationship with things that I consider that I'm not sure if I define them as obscene or not. Mm-hmm. Um, like for example, there's this uh, there's this director. He's an Italian director <clears throat> named Pier Paolo Pasolini, and he made a movie called Salo. I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the podcast before. I don't think so. Uh, he made a movie called Salo, and it's based on uh, the writings of the Marquis de Sade. And his last movie that he made before he was murdered. Oh, jeez. Uh, um, they still don't. They still don't know who murdered him. Uh, a lot of people think that it was a uh, a male prostitute because he was he was like he was. This was in the fifties, so this was not long after World War II. He was a notorious communist. Uh, he was uh, um, out and gay, um, which was you know pretty unheard of at the time um i actually think that abel ferrara made a movie about the last couple days of pasolini's life where willem dafoe plays pasolini and this is a movie that's um i don't think it has u.s distribution yet but uh it came out i think last year and it's like him having just made solo and like trying to convince distributors I, th- I think this is what about trying to convince distributors that it's like actually a work of art and not some like obscene thing. Right. So curious, I watched this movie. It's actually on the Criterion Collection, and it is revolting. Um, it's basically just like a bunch of these Italian fascists fascists um, kidnap a bunch of beautiful uh, teen teenagers and basically just like torture them uh, for a few days, subjecting them to different types of torture and humiliation. Um, and then of course in the end kill them all uh, it's a very disgusting movie but what it made me really think about is um, my relationship to art that's like that provocative art where I'm I'm kind of glad that it exists I, I think that art should provoke but I don't know if I want it inside of my brain right you see something that you can't I can't unsee. unsee it. Like, yeah. I know I'm, I'm, I'm picturing it right now, and it's gross. It's fucking gross, you right. know? Well, it's like when I was – this is – to get back to the 
horror movie angle. You know, I saw, I don't know which Friday the 13th movie when I was a kid, it was just on TV one day and I'm channel surfing and I find it and I watch about five minutes of it and it was just scary as hell. Mm -hmm. And I was like having nightmares and it's just something that you don't need to run into. Mm -hmm. Uh, and getting older doesn't necessarily change that you, you know, you're, you're more prepared to see despicable things, but you still, you know, right. It's totally, it's, it can be extremely unpleasant, uh, to see them. Yeah. And I think that like, uh, you know, another movie that's, um, I was talking to somebody about recently, uh, uh, Cannibal Holocaust, um, which now I feel like we have talked about. Family friendly. Yeah. Family friendly, uh, a bunch of murder and rape and such. Um, you know, it's just like, yeah, exactly. It's, I feel like now I'm, I'm better, I'm better conditioned to accept something like that. Um, but I'm probably less willing to actually watch it. Right. Um, well, I mean, with stuff like that, it's always a question to me of, is this a commentary? Is it trying to say something? Is it just exploitive? You know, is it just disgusting? Is it for that B movie horror fan who just wants to see silly special effects and gets a charge out of seeing this sort of, I don't know, just disgustingness, you mm-hmm. know, just the pageantry of the disgustingness. Yeah. Um, I mean, a film like Hostel or something like that, like so-called torture porn movies, um, I avoid that like the play because it's just like there's nothing pleasant about it. There's nothing enjoyable or artistic about it to me. It's mm-hmm. not showing me something that I like I like you said, you know, that you want to have in your brain, you yeah. know, I mean, it could acknowledge the psycho you know, the, the insanity of people in the world, it could be quote unquote authentic. It can be quote unquote art, but it's like, you know, the world's already, there's already (laughs) horrible things in the news. I don't need to like sit through two hours of disgustingness. Oh yeah. You know, and it's also, I think that there's this sort of this idea amongst what you considered important art and movies is often, movies are often a, uh, a good starting place for talking about something like this, wherein movies can be important within the context of when, where, and how they were made, but standing alone, you wonder if they're, if they hold up as an actual piece of art. And, you know, that also like sort of splits the difference between what's important and what is actually enjoyable that you want to revisit over and over and over. Well, I think, you know, it's year end list season. And I think something that music critics think about, or that I'm thinking about as I read all these lists and work on my own, you know, there's always the feeling, I think for a lot of writers, especially if you're, I think just in general that, um, you want the music that came out this year to feel important Mm -hmm. or feels important to you, or you are, you have some, uh, it makes your job as a critic look more relevant if you can say that something important happened yep. in your on your beat, you right. know? And I don't know if people necessarily... I don't think people do that in a cynical way, but I think it's a very natural thing to want to feel like your work matters and thus the things you're writing about matter and had an impact and blah, blah, blah. And there was a real backlash a few years ago when Chuck Klosterman wrote this article about tune yards saying basically like, man, people are going to be really embarrassed about this in 10 years when they go back and look at the village voice Paz and Jop poll. And they were like, Oh, this was our number one, or I think it was number one, whatever it came in, you know? And that was like very much not acknowledging 
the sort of natural order of how music critic lists work, I think, Mm -hmm. but also just not acknowledging the importance of things carrying weight within a year or a season or a moment. And something can feel very important right now. And in 10 years, you know, we won't still watch it or listen to it. It won't be historically relevant necessarily, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't change that it had an impact in its moment. Do you, have you done all your writing for the Oregonian for your end stuff? No, I'm doing it this week. So it'll by the time you get this podcast, it will still not be out. Uh, but next <laughs> week, everything should be out Monday and Tuesday next week. I've done some writing for Paste. Um, I did some writing for a few albums, some of which we talked about two episodes ago. Uh, and I think it's totally, you're totally right because as a writer, you ha- uh, especially as a critic, you have to. You have to talk about why an album, why you have an album l- ranked as it is, and it's hard to do that simply saying because I really listen, I really liked it a lot, or I right. listened to it a lot. Right. Well, this is you know this is the struggle that I've had sort of internally as a a critic who writes for a newspaper and doesn't have to send my list to anyone. You know, I'm kind of an island, and I can really just say whatever I want, mm-hmm. uh, which is really a wonderful thing as a professional critic. <laughs> but at the same time, I feel the responsibility to the audience to make sure, like, like last year, the way I did it, I split it up, and I did, like, my 10 favorites that I listened to all the time and really loved and completely my personal taste. And then I did 10 more that I thought were, like, interesting or worth hearing, yeah. like, worth knowing about. Th- that's a know? really good way of doing it. Yeah, I thought that was a way, a nice way to like split it between something that had an impact that you shouldn't go through 2015 without or 2014 without knowing about. Mm -hmm. But I didn't necessarily play all day, you know, and something like the Kendrick Lamar album, which is so So clearly the consensus album of the year. It's really the only album I heard this year where it's like a lot of intelligence and talent and ambition coming together to try to make something really intelligent and ambitious. Mm-hmm. And when you hear that, you know it. And it's, that's the album that always ends up being or feeling like it should be album of the year, you yeah. know, but it just wasn't an album that I played 20 times. Right. You know, right. so I can't honestly put it at number three on my year end list and be like, well, you know, cause I, I don't know. I just have to, I don't like weighing it with all these factors. I want to pretty much have it just be, I'll put it this way. I've accepted that, you know, who knows how many years I'll get to do a music critic list for a newspaper and I'm just going to put whatever I want on it. Are you, you doing know? that again this year? The splitting it up like that? I don't think so. I think I'm just going to do my faves, but my yeah. list is a little bit more varied this year. Mm-hmm. Last year I was a little embarrassed because it was all just like very slick, uh, indie guitar pop, dream pop mm-hmm. type stuff. It was like a very similar, very samey list. Yeah. Uh, this year it's a lot more mm-hmm. spread out and I think will appeal to more people. Right. Nice. Yeah, it's uh um it's difficult cuz I think also, you know, like when you when you really attach yourself to a piece of music or an album, for example, um and you really want people to listen to it and you really want people to feel the way that you feel in listening to it, which is excitement, um, you know, like you really want them to dig in the same way. You really want to share it, and you want to encourage them to share it. And with the glut of available music, it's hard, I think, to do that, to have someone take your recommendation and, and devote the time to possibly connecting to it in the way that you've connected to it. And so you automatically 
attach a narrative to it that is going to be hyperbolic. Right. But I think that that's the, the, I think that's the mark of a good critic is if you can overcome the, that hyperbole and make something that's relatable and still worth engaging with as a reader enough that you're like, well, shit, I'm going to go get this music right now, or I'm going to go listen to this album right now. Um, it's a really well, difficult balancing act. Yeah, I, and I think the funny thing about it is that people do a lot of their best writing on year-end blurbs because mm-hmm. it's like people are writing about things they've had a lot of time to sit with. They know they, the album really well. Yeah. Um, you're not writing a full album review. You can make the assumption everyone's already heard it, you know, so you can just kind of make your case uh, for why you really love it. Yeah. And so you get people and you don't have to write as much. So people mm-hmm. just have a lot more. It seems like people have more opportunity to just be better writers and be more interesting and clever and funny. Um, but of course, you're in with your own blurbs. I think the the worry is that people don't read them. You know, people just mm-hmm. kind of skip down and see what the list looks like. And yeah. no one's like, man, what a great paragraph. You know, what a, what a great description. Uh, I mean, not mm-hmm. that anyone says that about Jack shit anyway. But, yeah. you know, I, I, I have... <laughs> they just be like, I think that Father John Misty should be higher. And you're like, if, if Do you, you actually. Not, s- why? Like, who's a fuck, man? <laughs> right. Who fucking cares? Well, it's my attitude now is like, did you hear all these albums and have a different arrangement of them? Yeah. You should make a list. Right. You know, I didn't make this like for you to vet you know this is my list you can make your own and if you didn't hear all the albums on it great you can listen to them you know like that was the point (laughs) for me to say these are things that are good that you might like that's all they are that's all these lists are that's why i you know i love plugging uh coke machine glow because one thing that happened last year that i am fully on board with uh that i think probably alienated a lot of readers um who are only into looking at the ranking uh, you know, is uh, Coke Machine Glow did a thing called Harmony Harmony Unison, where a very unique year end yeah, idea. Where we didn't we didn't rank anything, we just took everyone's individual lists, assigned points based on how things were ranked, and then took the top ten and then just listed those in no particular order. I think it was in alphabetical order, and so it's sort of like here are the top here are the 10 albums that everyone on staff agreed were the best albums of the year. And then everyone can just write about whatever they want to write about after that. So I wrote about Zola Jesus. I wrote about Chad Van Galen, uh, because you know, there's stuff that a lot of people on the staff really like, but it just doesn't really make that consensus. And so then it gives you a chance to just sort of be like, here's a real, here's an album that I, that I really liked a lot and I want to write about it and I can write as much as I want or as little as I want. Um, and we're doing that again this year and we just figured out what those top albums are. I'm not going to say it. Not that anyone, no, don't spoil it. Don't not spoil that any Coop Machine Glow reader is, is probably listening to this, but well, they might be. That's true. They actually might be. Um, Shout but, out Coke Machine Glow. yeah, what up? What up? What up? Uh, but it's something that I really like because it takes away it, it, it forces you to actually read the writing. Right. You presumably know. yeah i mean if someone's going to look at it at all yeah no i like i mean i like that you know the glow and other sites are not doing you know when you read a review like film reviews often mm-hmm. will not have a score attached yep. and then it's like well you have to read the review yeah. to actually figure out if the person liked it mm-hmm. um and what bothers me sometimes is in music reviews where the writer is trying to be so 
clever or socially conscious or may put, put something in a context and give you the background without actually saying whether or not the critic liked it. Yeah. You know, you can get all the way through. If you go back and read any of the Lana Del Rey reviews, <laughs> any of them, uh, you have all these critics tying themselves into pretzels trying not to say that it's really boring and they didn't like it and they'll never listen to it again. But no one was willing to actually say that. Everyone had to, everyone was like weirdly respectful of the craft of it, you know, and of the, um, the style and of the fact kind of just of the fact that here's this person making extremely quiet, boring music that doesn't really connect to any modern trends at all. Mm -hmm. And yet it's going to sell a ton of records and it has a major label behind it and it's going to be very successful. And it's interesting that people like it. Um, And absolutely, that is a totally interesting critical angle to talk about. But, you know, you're still reviewing an album. Right. And you do need to say, hopefully, whether or not you liked it. (laughs) Um, So I, you know, I am always trying not to get there's sometimes i had somebody actually email me about something i wrote i thought i was writing a positive blurb on some album and somebody emailed me and was like oh i really liked your blurb but i wasn't sure if you actually liked the album or not and i was like oh no i got too clever yeah i I need to actually do my job and tell people if it's good or not (laughs) oh man yeah i gotta i always have to avoid that because you can get so caught up in just like in in once again building that narrative that you forget to just inject your opinion in in the middle of it um and that's you know uh i i hold coaching glow to a high standard because because i think that as far as music writing goes they try to buck trends of um of like listicles and ratings and just be about writing as much as possible and good writers and giving them a space to sort of play around with things. And I think a perfect example is something that I just edited and published today by uh, Christopher Alexander, who's not a big music writer, but who is a really good writer and one that has had some, had some uh, chance to work on his writing through the site. And he just published a 2,500 uh, word review of Grimes's new album. Um, a month after it came out. So yeah. long after everyone's read all the reviews and everyone's gotten their opinions out there. And it's a, it's a very, it's a very thorough review, but it's also a very personal review. And that's what I want to read. I want to know not only like, where does this fall in the great context of good music in general? And why is that? But also like, what does this mean to you? Right. Well, see, that's another, not to get too deep into like music critic inside baseball, mm-hmm. um, but that's another gripe that I always have with these year end lists is like the blurbs always end up being this song because everyone who's a music writer now, like 80% of music writers mm-hmm. are all 20 somethings in New York. And this was <laughs> not the case like 10 years ago, I think. I yeah. think it was like, you know, a wider variety of people somehow or a wider age group, age range of people. And I can say this as like a 30 year old now. Right. Um, but I know for a fact, you know, everyone at spin or everyone at fader or everyone at a lot of these publications, like the people running these sites are younger than they historically have been, I think. And so there's a lot of blurbs where people will generalize and say, this, uh, Drake song is the song that we all turn to, to soundtrack this moment, this particular moment, or that time we went out at 4am or you know, whatever it is, right. Some scenario, um, that applies to a fairly narrow range of people. And because the writer is trying to reach out in this very universal way Mm -hmm. in the year end list, like 
make this again, like to make it feel important. You know, you get these blurbs where the writer's saying this was this universal thing. Everyone felt about this song or it was there to provide that feeling. And it's like, you know, there are people who are older than this or younger than this who also enjoy music or who didn't find this on SoundCloud or, you know, it's just like, I don't know if it's it, 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 it. it's the right thing to say to potentially the readers of these sites who maybe fit into these demographics. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also is, uh, it's myopic in a way, you know, it doesn't admit that someone who is 65 might've gone out to buy the Adele record, you know, right. like someone who is not going through their second breakup ever, uh, <laughs> also engaged with Adele and enjoyed the album. Right. Right. Um, speaking of that, uh, I did want to, in some ways, not belabor this because I haven't formed enough opinions about this, but I do have And we have to talk about The Leftovers still. You have to convince me that it's a good show. Yeah, so uh, uh, stay tuned um, for Dave and I to talk about TV stuff. Uh, But I do want to talk about the Grammy nominations that just recently came out. Oh, sure. Because um, a few things. One is I am very much put off by the popular celebration of the weekend. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think that I don't think that I can't feel my face or can't feel my face is a bad song per se, but I do think that it celebrates uh, something that the weekend has uh, always celebrated, which is just excess drug addiction. Um, basically sleepwalking your way through your your 20s uh using you know your dick as your is your guide <laughs> right um right. yeah you I, know I, not I that i'm it. not like i hate the music uh-huh. i don't like that song <clears throat> okay well here so but it was a massive hit he ruled the summer yeah so i uh i used to be a huge huge weekend fan i will that first mixtape i adored um and you can find a really super positive review on Coke Machine Glow uh, that's just like glowing about it, pun intended. But um, I subsequently liked him less and less. The album that he put out after those mixtapes I thought was really bad. And this new album is a little better, but it's just more of the same. And so people are finally catching on to him now that he's like, you know, uh, on a major label and, um, you know, made this song that basically just sounds like Michael Jackson, uh, you know, and people are calling him the next Michael Jackson. <clears throat> but to me, less like Michael Jackson than Let's Get Lost by Carly Rae Jepsen sounds like Rock With You. You know? <laughs> yeah, I don't think she got enough credit this year. Like the Cindy Lauper comparison was made because that's what she brought up, and that sort of felt like the natural thing. But yeah. you know, Cindy Lauper was a contemporary of Prince and recorded Prince songs, and mm-hmm. there is a heavy Prince vibe and certainly an MJ influence on the Carly album. But because she's like this white Canadian girl, no one was going to make that comparison. Well, yeah, don't you think it's a little racist to? Um to the only the only artists that the weekender is compared to is prince or michael jackson would you compare him to hollow notes you know like no you would go right back to the source which is prince right. or or michael jackson or whatever but you know i think those two names 
it's sort of just been decided that those are the two most important figures of the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and any black male R&B singer is inevitably going to come back to that or come back to Stevie or Marvin Gaye or any of those types of figures. I don't know if it's – I mean I don't know if there's a, a, a racial element per se. I mean I think he's pretty – straightforwardly aiming for that sound right i don't find it retro though which is so which is so hilarious about it is that i mean carly jepson is has a lot of retro elements um which is that that like we have to we have to place labels on him in order to accept him when he's basically just a guy who just uh sings essentially the same melody about doing drugs and and fucking strippers pretty much um yeah, I I don't find his music appealing at all. I I think that so the point that I was going to be making is that suddenly it's okay to celebrate uh rampant drug abuse and less than a week ago Scott Weiland died from basically from destroying his body for 25 years. Um and his uh his widow writes this letter about how, you know, let's not glorify what happened to him. You know, that he was, he wasn't a bad person, but he did a lot of bad things and he was a terrible father. And she basically just had to clean up after him constantly. He was a total fucking mess. And here we are celebrating a young guy who's essentially on the way to be doing the same thing. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think he's one of those artists where, you know, the lyrics are sort of disregarded, or the meaning of the lyrics is disregarded over the catchiness of it, mm-hmm. you know, or the sort of the flash and the like appeal of it, you know. Um, but certainly there are tons of artists where the lyrics are brought out and spotlighted and really torn apart without acknowledging the um, the music or the the craft or any of those other elements. So I think. I'm less bothered by people giving him a pass than I am on just like the, the various approaches people choose sort of, you know, pretty arbitrarily, you know, I mean, when the Casey Musgraves album came out, all the reviews were about the lyrics Hmm. and there was not really a lot of talk at all about here's this extremely well-recorded, gorgeously sung, gorgeously performed country record, which sounds a lot more natural and, crafted than these much more pop oriented Nashville type albums, you know, Mm -hmm. and all the same things that were good about her first album are good about the second album. But people were so hung up on the narrative and the stories and the content of the songs that the rest of it just gets ignored. Whereas because the weekend makes club music or radio songs, I think that's much more appreciated. And the same thing with the Justin Bieber album, you know, he's making club songs or he's making pop songs. And so, the fact that he's coasting on these like extremely limp portraits of his own biography that reveal nothing, mm-hmm. you know, that have no detail and no real window into who he is as an artist, as far as I'm concerned, that's just glossed over because it's it's not that it's not expected of that genre, you know. And so I guess it's it comes down to critical bias of like, well, country is about storytelling, pop is not. You know, and so I think people sort of zone in on certain things and they don't necessarily give it that full holistic approach and try to think about what's actually going on here or what's, you know, what's the most interesting thing to say about it. 
I'm, I'm, I guess not I'm, to not to like throw down the gauntlet, you know. I was gonna say but, we just but, probably just lost a lot of listeners uh, who are just like, "How dare you say that about my Justin Bieber?" Right. Um, right. I, I guess I'm also surprised that no one has brought up R. Kelly as a, as the main, basically the the main progenitor of uh, of the weekend. You know, the thing about Prince and Michael Jackson is. I think it's insulting to compare the weekend to them because that's com- completely downplaying uh, Prince's sex positivity. Uh, because Prince, you know, was talking about a lot of really taboo things uh, in a really open way, nothing that's dangerous or bad. Whereas the weekend is talking about like just like licentious- licentiousness for licentiousness's sake, right? Um, in almost, a, almost for shock value. In a very, in, in a sometimes very dangerous way. In fact, there's a there's a song on his second mixtape, um, Thursday, I think, is the second mixtape. That is, I think, is describing a gang rape. Uh-huh. Um, not to go into that, but you know, that's the kind of stuff that we got here. Like some dark, some really dark shit that he doesn't explore. He just sort of talks about. And I think that he mistakes the two. And then also um, Michael Jackson, who was a very positive figure, uh, singing about a lot of positive things. To compare him to them, I think, is to, is to in a way, taint the, um, the influence and the, the status that they've had for pop music. Yeah, it's, it's a very superficial and undeserved comparison. Compare him to fucking R. Kelly, you know? Yeah. Com- compare him to another sex criminal. Well, sure. I mean, but it becomes. But R. Kelly's like actually has a history of of allegations, allegedly and horrible, yeah. horrible behavior. But well, but anyway, I mean, it just you know it becomes a way of making this new musician feel like he's important. Exactly. Of presenting exactly. him as this important figure who falls in a historical trend or whatever, and you know you can why go, though why. I again, I think it comes down to partially critics believing it and feeling like this new thing is exciting because it's new, mm-hmm. uh, and part of it comes down to critics trying to make themselves look worthwhile. You know, I think and I think that happens on a very subliminal level. Mm-hmm. I don't think it comes. I don't think that's. I don't think it's a cynical behavior, um, but I do think it's an element of, you know, why is new music so prioritized in the first place? I mean. You can go on Spotify and listen to anything that's ever been recorded, just about, yeah. and that's all going to be new music to somebody. You know, I mean, there's still albums by you too that I haven't listened to. I'm sure they're awesome. You mm-hmm. know, and I'm sure I could go back to something from 1982 and be like, "Holy shit, uh, where has this been all my life?" That, and be just as excited about it in 2015. Yeah. And I don't know if there's a good mode for or a good outlet for writers to sort of acknowledge that or funnel that in in a interesting way that's why the best new artist category is kind of hilarious in in the grammys in the grammys yeah i mean <clears throat> the big surprise was of course courtney barnett um who is a pretty independent artist but she has a few albums under her belt you know and she's she's a a new artist well, so, so the grammys always people always get confused by this cuz the grammys have a very loose weird definition of new artist but it's basically like your first release of impact so like i think there was some whole thing where whitney houston was not up for best new artist at the time Mm -hmm. because she had 
been on a single that had like been successful like the year before Uh-oh. and i think this a similar thing happened with lady gaga maybe mm. um and then you had the case of like david gray for right. white ladder which is like his fourth studio album or something yeah. like that getting nominated for best new artist so oh, it's okay. kind of this you know it's a very fuzzy category where it seems like the grammys just do whatever they feel like um i i think megan trainer is going to win which is a shame because her music is bad, but <laughs> I, I would. Bet I haven't you, even heard I, of. I bet you a hundred dollars that she wins. Her and her and uh, Cartney Barnett are the only two artists. I felt I felt really out of. I felt really old looking at a lot of the. I mean, I know what most of the music is because I'm not totally like living under a fucking rock or anything. <laughs> right. But uh, especially those new artists, I only know Megan Trainer, uh, and I only know that one song. And I know Courtney, Courtney Barnett. I don't know who the other people are. Yeah, I actually did not know who Tori Kelly is. And there was someone else on there who I had never heard of before. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's also just because a lot of this stuff, like, exists in this weird industry bubble where it, like, only lives on radio and at award shows. Mm-hmm. And you don't see people talking about it on the Internet. You, if you don't go on to the, like, top YouTube videos or whatever, you're going to miss it. Like, things that are have lots of money behind them and are super mainstream can also be just as obscure, I think as independent stuff, because if you don't see it on pitchfork or fader or spin or whatever, then it kind of doesn't exist to you if you operate in that world. Right. Right. Yeah. (sighs) And then of course there's also the whole, um, like calling something like urban contemporary, which is just a straight up, dated well that's like a weird a certain type of music so that's a new award that i think they basically invented to give to people who are black artists who don't make music that falls into the traditionally black categories like i mean the rap whole... or r&b right exactly yeah. i mean they basically invented the awards they could give it to frank ocean you know mm-hmm. a couple years ago yeah um and like someone like um Leon Lahavis is nominated for it this year and she made basically a soul record but you could call it an indie record you could call mm-hmm. it a folk record like it has all these different elements of it um but and there's no reason for it to be in a quote unquote urban category except that the Grammys like the music industry is kind of racist uh so you have these artificial distinctions being made yeah all right, I'm 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 done with the Grammys. Uh, I'm sick of talking about that stupid shit. Uh, but to talk about year-end things, um, one thing that we like to talk about here on Pretty Little Grown Men are TV shows, and uh, I had to make a recent list of my favorite TV shows of the year. Nice. Um, among that list was uh, Rick and Morty, which is a TV show that I love. Um, Hannibal which is another fantastic TV show. Uh, Nathan For You <clears throat> on Comedy Central, which is, I think, just incredibly hilarious. And a show called Leftovers, which I tried to avoid at all costs, partly because I didn't think the first season was bad, but I thought that it was really spotty and wandered a lot. Didn't really seem to have much of a point. Um, pretty typical of Damon Lindelof. Uh, bullshit and i saw it headed towards it, that direction where you know we're talking about damon lindelof the guy who co-created lost um the guy who wrote the script to prometheus the guy who was uh brought in to rewrite the ending to world war z 
a guy known for high concepts where he can't like just can't fucking deliver to save his life uh, or to save his career, although his career seems to be doing fine. Um, I mean, we've talked about Lost plenty of times. Yes. I'm a Lindelof hater. I will never forgive him. I know this is like immature and mean, but I will never forgive him for Lost. I do not think the things he's done since are particularly good. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he, I think he is a great idea factory, but I don't think he is a good storyteller. Mm. And um, I have not watched The Leftovers because I've kind of been waiting for it to go through a bunch of seasons so someone can tell me, oh, it's actually good. It's not going to be bullshit, so, which is my approach to like all TV, I should say. Yeah. I wait until the first season of everything, which is why I love the Netflix streaming model because, okay, here's the whole thing. All right, well, I'll watch a bunch and I'll see if it's worth my mm-hmm. time instead of hanging on week after week after week. So, um, unfortunately, you have to watch the first season in order to watch the second season. To you understand what's going on. You can't just jump in. I can't but, just read about it on Wikipedia. But... What I will say is that okay, so if we're gonna if we're gonna primarily criticize Damon Lindelof for being uh, unable to execute good ideas, um, and you just mentioned that you don't think he's a good storyteller, which I can understand because the whole point of storytelling is having a complete, resolute arc, and right. if you don't nail the landing, then it sort of um, devalidates what came, what comes before it in a lot of ways. The thing about the leftovers is so the the basic premise of the TV show is that two years before it starts, there was this worldwide event where I think um, I can't remember if it's like three percent or ten percent, but m- hundreds of millions of people just disappear. Uh, no one knows why or or basically what happens, but just tons of people are just just disappear in thin air. Um, Obviously, people relate this to uh, um, to Revelation in that it's the beginning of the apocalypse, wherein uh, before the, I think it's seven years of, of tribulation, God or Jesus takes all of the righteous people uh, to heaven. Right. Um, and so you see, like, usually you see, you see the most, like, infants or children go because they're innocence, you know. Um, <clears throat> so the, the show basically puts this premise forward that a lot of people think that's what hap- what's happening. But essentially, the first season is about you're introduced to these characters who are the leftovers, really, um, just dealing with the fact that you, they had all these people in their lives disappear. And... Um, at the core of the show is uh, uh, Kevin Garvey, who is a sheriff in a town in New York, and no one in his family disappeared, but his wife left him to join a cult, and his son left to join another cult, and his daughter is basically just a, like a teenager who's just... You know, she's basically just like whatever. Like I don't, I, I don't have any, any direction in life. His dad hears voices and is going certifiably crazy, and so he's put into a mental institution, and he starts having these sort of like sleepwalking episodes. What you eventually start to realize is that nothing on the show is really supernatural per se. 
it's just about loss and how people deal with loss and the fact that the guy at the the center of the show is has like a severe mental illness that he and he doesn't want to and he doesn't want to deal with the fact that what is happening to his father is kind of happening to him right so the show establishes all these things there's some there's some good episodes in the first season but it's really hit or miss and it, like i said it's just kind of all over the place anyway in the second season uh kevin and his his daughter and his new like girlfriend um and a baby that they found on the front porch which is it's hard to explain how the baby got there uh, just the, in the usual way yeah um it, yeah it's like the the baby comes from a place it, it makes it makes sense but uh they moved to a town in texas which is in the middle of a national park and it's made a national park because no one in this town departed um everyone like no no one in the town disappeared two years ago so basically like it's turned into a national park and it's like considered a place of miracles so they moved there and the the season is just um it's it's so well written nothing that you ever expect to happen actually happens i feel like it takes all the basic tropes of television and just defies them in a lot of ways repeatedly um there there are some definite like goosebumps inducing moments where i just think like the writing is just like beautiful the direction is really interesting um the characters are really well thought out. Uh, there's a, a much more well-defined arc. Um, and I think that's the thing about the first season is you could have had the first season of the television show and the way that it ended could have just been fine, you know? And I, I've watched the, all the second season and I have not watched the season finale, um, which premiered last Sunday. Uh, but I have a feeling it's going to end the same way, which is if the show ends now, it could just end. Well, I read, I, you know, I just saw people reacting to it, and they seemed very positive about it. Yeah. And that's another thing, too, is, like, critics seem to be coming out of the woodwork. The unfortunate part is that um, it just hasn't had the ratings, and so... It may not get renewed. It may not get renewed. And actually, Damon Lindelof has said, if it doesn't get renewed, that's fine. He would like to keep going with it. But if it doesn't get renewed, it has enough of a, an ending. Now, that's what I think is is so perfect for this, is... The big mystery that you would think in any other show or any other situation that would need to be solved is why did this happen? Why did why did 10% of the world population disappear three years ago? This needs to be explained. But the great part about the show is that it, it would ruin the show if it was explained. Because the whole point of the show is to have characters who are dealing with unexplainable loss. And that is what's so compelling is and that's why there's like so much relatable sadness. It's like, it's like losing a loved one for no reason. It's like having someone and just, just die in a car accident and there's no reason why. Right. I mean, isn't that much more real and, and honest versus coming up with some extremely elaborate plot, you know, for why, yeah. why this, this, Exactly. Exactly. I don't want. I don't want Damon Lindelof to explain this. I hope he does not have a plan. I hope that this is stays the way that it is, which is a character based show about people dealing with immeasurable loss. Because 
that is what makes it so great. Right. And that's why I think that this is the perfect show for him because he does not have to stick that landing. Right. And, and in fact, what... if he did stick the landing, I, I, I'm positive that he would fuck it up and measure. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> of course. Um, but that sounds, you know, like what he wanted to do, the show he thought he was making in some ways with lost where okay. the argument at the end of lost was like, well, this is a character driven show. As opposed to this is an extremely elaborate conspiracy theory, time traveling, plot point driven show. And it was both. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you can certainly watch Lost episode by episode and feel the tension and connect to the characters and enjoy it just as great entertainment. Yeah. Um, but it was, I think what was frustrating about Lost was the clear inability of the writer's room to have any idea what to do in the final season and just the denial of the fact that they didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. You know, it felt, it felt rude, uh, or something to the fans who had gone to the work of creating all these fan theories and building all these websites. And this is, you know, this is not happening in 2015. This is happening in Lost came out in, I think 20, uh, 2003 or 2004. Yeah. Um, So it's still like early on in the days of like the social web and so on. Mm -hmm. And it was something that people were really passionate about. And, you know, not that a show should have to kowtow to its fans at all, um, but it should at least acknowledge their passion and interest, you know, in the things that they thought the show, the show that they thought they were getting. I'll put it that way. Right. Right. I mean, what would you have thought of, of Lost if... See, I guess maybe I'm... I, I And I don't remember... We always exactly. come back to Lost. Right. Because it is like... It's still my favorite show. Yeah. I mean, I think it is still like the most interesting thing, you know, that I've seen on TV in, in a long time. But it's a show that's... I mean, it was... It was it was paced and and compelled forward by that need to find out how this all fits together. You know, how, what is the island? Why are they, why are they here? Right. What's going on? And we do get, you know, we do get some answers to that in season six. They're not great answers. No, they're not. Uh, And I was just, you know, uh, what, what really bothered me about Lost to, I've probably said this before, but it's just that, you know, each season sort of had its uh, conclude each season sort of had its like new challenge that the season was running toward, whether it was, why can't women have children? on the island Mm -hmm. or whether it was time travel. Can we change the past? You know, can we set off this nuclear bomb and change things? Mm -hmm. Um, All of these sort of uh, things that come up in the show and became eventually just like leveled out as new challenges escalated and just kicked the old ones to the side. And so eventually you end up with just like warring gods and the whole debate of like faith versus science or reason or however you want to put it between uh, Jack and Locke, you know, it, the show basically says, yeah, debate's over. It's these warring gods, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it becomes very like biblical or mythological at that point. Right. And it was disappointing to see so much effort invested into all these things that the show is telling you for 20 something hours of your life, you should care about this. Yeah. It's very important. Mm-hmm. And then running through that process, you know, through six seasons and saying at the end, oh, those like, four or five major things that you thought were important. We're just not going to deal with those at all. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah. mean, it wasn't like a few stray things didn't get tied up. It was like gigantic entire seasons of plot 
mm-hmm. were just left out. And like Walt, right. you know, I mean, right. you could make a list a mile long right, right. of all these things. Yeah. And that, those are some funny, uh, you can probably still find them on YouTube somewhere. Some funny videos of people just listing all the things that weren't resolved and lost. Right. <laughs> and oh, it's man. just like a 10 should, minute video. <laughs> I, I would probably make me want to throw my computer out a window. <laughs> but I think that's, that's the whole point is, you know, the leftovers, I don't, I don't feel, I mean, you know, we, I, I feel like I became, I became addicted to Pretty Little Liars because I wanted to know who A was. Right. You know? And then, and then through that, that desire, I grew to love the show. And I, I think maybe the same thing should, could be said about Lost for me. And I'm just talking about my own viewing habits. Uh, what what compels me forward, and I think that when, you know, I was uh, watching Scandal for for a bit, which I've given up on completely, or Alias, which I never ever finished, what compelled me forward was wanting to find out what happens. The whole right. the whole basics the whole basis behind like serialized pulp television, um, The Leftovers does not. I don't feel that urge to go forward because I want to find out the answers to everything. I feel, I feel the urge to go forward because I feel like it's like really well written, um, incisive television. I think that's actually what I prefer now at this point in my life. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't want to rush to the end. Um, I mean, it depends on the show, but it's like even a show like orphan black where, Mm -hmm. The plot, I think, is has been very well handled for the most part and is pretty interesting and complex. You know, I mostly just want to watch um, the actors act. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to hang out with these characters and see them interacting with each other because that's just interesting enough, even in the context of this, like, pretty insane sci-fi TV show. Mm-hmm. So do you want to... Uh, the task is now upon you to get me to watch all of jessica jones yeah well that i was gonna bring it up actually when we were talking about uh horror movie gore because there ends up being quite a bit of just really unfortunate visual things in jessica jones in the second half which i was not anticipating oh really um so i watched the first episode which yeah. i kind of i didn't think was bad i just was a little bored um, yeah, I think it's, you know, the second half is better, I think. Mm-hmm. And once you kind of get into it, it starts a little slow and it's a little bit, it could have been a 10 hour show. It didn't need to be 13 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of, there's a little bit of repetition. Um, but so for those listening at home, Jessica Jones is a new show on Netflix, uh, as part of Marvel's deal, uh, with Netflix. Uh, they also did daredevil and they have some more shows coming along. Did you ever watch daredevil? I watched the first episode and thought it was just like gritty and that was about it. You uh, know? Yeah. Um, I, I'm interested to watch more now that I've seen Jessica Jones, but mm-hmm. it, I wasn't compelled by it. Yeah. Uh, but so Jessica Jones is like a pretty new Marvel character. I actually wasn't familiar with her. Um, she was, I think created by Brian Michael Bendis in the two thousands somewhere and is connected to Luke Cage and mm-hmm. has done all this various, all these various things. But for the purposes of the TV show, she's basically just a very strong person. Um, she doesn't fly. She doesn't have like laser powers. It's not like a special effectsy type show, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so when she fights somebody, it's mostly just her punching them and they go about twice as far as you would ordinarily expect. Right. You right. know? Um, so it's kind of interesting to see how a person who has these like moderate superpowers, you know, deals with the Marvel world. Do they ever explain like, own. is she just like a mutant? 
Basically. No, it's uh, it, it is explained, and uh, you know, she's in an accident, uh, and loses her parents and her brother, and after that, she wakes up and she has the super strength mm, okay. all of a sudden. Um, that's her power is just super strength, just super strength. Yeah, yeah, as far as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's you know, there's a lot to, there's a lot to like about it. It is a show about trauma. Um, it's a show about dealing with that. There's like a support group for people who have been the victims of this mind control guy, Kilgrave, you know, which of course is like a commentary on people who have been abused in general. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be, it's pretty easy to relate to non superpowered fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the way it handles the trauma and what Jessica has been through, I think it does that really tastefully and really effectively without showing you these really horrible things. Mm. And then as you get into the later parts of the show, it does escalate in terms of the violence and the gore and what this character Kilgrave is willing to inflict on people, uh, particularly toward the very end of the show. I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a really grisly shot of a person who has lost some limbs. And it's just like, I would have really liked to have not seen that on my TV show that I was otherwise enjoying, (laughs) you know, it's just like, it sort of, it just feels dissonant with the level of care that they were bringing to Jessica Jones's interactions and some of the other characters, how they've dealt with it, you know? So it felt a little bit showy and grisly in a way it didn't need to be. But other than that, you know, I thought, um, all the actors were great. I thought the, uh, um, the direction and the cinematography, you know, while not being super exciting, I thought had some nice moments and like, you know, artful enough, I should say. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was, and as you know, it's, it's great to see finally, uh, from Marvel or from anyone, you know, here is not only an answer to the lack of female heroes in these movies and TV shows, but also, you know, an answer to like true detective, you know, mm-hmm. because this is very much a show about a hard drinking, dark PI, and it has that sort of comic book feel to it. So you never yeah. get super, I guess it could be even darker. It never gets to like the pitch black level of True Detective season two. Yeah. But it is in that vein. It is exists in that genre as much as it does in the superhero stuff, uh, potentially more so. And it's nice to see a show about strong female characters where the dudes are really the dude, you have a dude who's a villain who's a petulant baby, and the other dudes, the other uh, male characters on the show are not particularly important. Mm-hmm. You know, um, really, the three major characters beyond Kilgrave, well, Luke Cage, um, but he exists almost as uh, cheesecake, like he exists as a love interest for yeah. Jessica. Yeah, and it's it was really compelling and I think valuable to have a show like that uh, exist. It's. I'm kind of surprised too by the willingness, especially uh, in Daredevil and Jessica Jones, to be to be adult shows. Right. Um, right. It's very much removed from the like from a movie like Captain America or Iron Man, where mm-hmm. it's like colorful, sticky. Yeah. Yeah. Where you know where, or yeah, the Avengers, where there's going to be a you know, a, sh- a shit ton of merchandise for kids, you know, you're not going to see Jessica Jones merchandise for a six year old girl. Right. Um, not that she shouldn't be a role model or anything, but the show is violent. 
there is not explicit, but uh, realistic. Well, not realistic because though I saw the first episode and her and Luke Cage have sex and it's like superpower sex. It's intense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but that that the the show that that Marvel is willing to make sh- make. Sh- to make content for adults, which I also think, you know, and you, you could definitely speak better to this than I, than I could, but I feel like that's what, that's a trend that comic books are also following in a lot of ways is they want to appeal to adults. Um, well, it's a funny thing because, you know, I haven't read Marvel or DC comics regularly in a long time, but certainly things that are adult driven, like Vertigo's whole line or um, something like Saga, uh, by Brian Michael Bendis, uh, or no, I'm sorry, by Brian K. Vaughn. Yeah. Um, things like that, you know, are certainly not aimed at six-year-olds, not aimed at, you know, 10-year-olds. Uh, it can be read by anyone, but there's certainly adult content in them. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think this is a trend that goes goes back for, you know, probably 30 years now. I mean, you look at the Dark Knight Returns and all the Frank right. Miller stuff in yeah. the 80s. And, you know, comics definitely took a turn from super campy 60s, like Superman stuff, like Superman Red and Superman Blue, or like, mm. you know, what you think of with like the original Batman TV show, stuff that was like incredibly silly and colorful and cartoony. Um, yeah, I mean, comics have been moving away from that for a long time and diversifying. Um, to me, the real issue with i think in some ways marvel comics and dc alienate their adult readers because they are perpetually rebooting the universe and doing these Mm -hmm. huge crossover events and changing everything up you know almost on a yearly basis and you have to constantly be finding what's going on figuring out what's going on and getting your bearings and so you have all these entry points for people Mm -hmm. and with all these movies coming out they're sort of situated to have some new series to go along with the movie and things like that like product type tie-ins yeah but if you're say someone like me who's 30 and just wants to read spider-man every month you know it's too hard to keep up and things are just constantly being rebooted and it's like it becomes not satisfying which is why i stopped reading superhero comics Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, also it it does feel I, I think especially in DC's case, you know, post Christopher Nolan Batman, um, and now with Zack Snyder at the helm, basically of of this like current D- DC is is isn't as far along as Marvel is in this grand scheme of of movies that all tie together, but Zack Snyder's. Uh, Superman um, and now Batman versus Superman um, definitely are very dark, very gritty, extremely serious. It looks hilarious to me. I am really excited to see it because I think it will be very funny. Well, so I I was going to say that's how I felt until I saw the most recent trailer, which just came out last week. The silliest one. It is so fucking goofy. I want to (laughs) watch... We had someone on Twitter comment uh, about me saying this about Star Wars, but I want to watch the ever-loving fuck out of Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice 
colon Dawn of Justice right. because right the silliest movie of all time. I mean, they reveal in the trailer. I mean, not only is Wonder Woman in the movie, yeah. but also this like weird shitty version of Doomsday gets revealed mm-hmm. as like the big villain, and it's like, all right, this is you have Lex Luthor, you have Doomsday, you have like three other, you have Superman, Batman fighting each other, and Wonder Woman. This movie's a total clusterfuck. I know, which like makes I me hope really I hope that it's six and a half hours long. <laughs> right. I mean, it looks like Lord of the Rings. You know? <laughs> it's just like how much can you put in this movie? And Lex Luthor is like. He's just like zippity doo dah, hey ha hoo dee ha, hoo ha hoo. Yeah, it's a totally everything about it seems completely ridiculous and implausible to me. Uh, even down to like the Ben Affleck Batman, you know. Well, that whole that whole aside. So the the trailer pretty much gives this away, which is that Batman and Superman stop fighting and they work together because there's that it's whole the dawn of justice. It's because that whole there's that whole like yeah exactly spoiler dawn. alert. Yeah, they're gonna make the Justice League. Uh, but that whole like aside they have is like, is she with you? No, no, bro. Is she with you? I didn't know. I thought oh, yeah, she was about, with you. About Wonder Woman. Yeah. Yeah. After like this incredibly dark campaign that's been going on for months, it's like, oh, by the way, there's a joke in this movie. <laughs> Just yeah. letting you know, there's like one moment. Of so levity. is this is this how it happens in the comics? If you if you know whether or not you can verify this, uh, that oh, this is all made up. Oh, this is all like invented. It bullshit. seems like the plot is that. Lex Luthor finds General Zod's body and uses that to create Doomsday. That's not what happened. Okay. I mean, okay, so um, I mean that's what I'm. That's what it, that's what the trailers make the plot seem. So here's to be. this is why this kind of thing bumps me out, and it was the same thing with like Venom in Spider-Man Three, hmm. where you have like this legitimately scary villain who the care who Spider-Man is scared shitless of yeah. in the nineties. Like Venom was the best new Spider-Man villain in ages because he has all Spider-Man's powers. He hates Spider-Man. He's bigger and stronger and, and Spider-Man's Spidey sense doesn't work on him. Mm-hmm. So it's this, and it, plus he's like this totally psychopathic character who psychotic character who wants to eat Spider-Man's brains. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was really unfortunate that he gets reduced to this like manic Topher Grace bullshit in the movie because mm-hmm. uh, Sam Raimi didn't like Venom and it got shoehorned in by who, whatever producer, you know, at the time. And they made a movie with him and Sandman, which is like the worst team up ever. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just like creating this is always my irritation with these these comic book stories is that like you have. 40 to 50 to 60 years of wonderful, like beloved storytelling. Yeah. And it's like, eh, let's just make up some new bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the comics, Doomsday, initially, we don't know anything about him. He's this mystery character who's just like shows up at a page at a time in action comics for like months. Mm-hmm. And then finally uh, ends up fighting everybody, all the DC superheroes, beats the hell out of everyone, ends up fighting Superman. They fight to a standstill and they basically punch each other out and both die is mm-hmm. what we think happens. Yeah. Uh, and eventually Superman comes back. He's in some kind of Kryptonian coma, whatever. Yeah. And there's more Doomsday too. And we do find out that Doomsday basically was this Kryptonian invention by some mad scientist who was trying to create like some highly evolved super being. And so Doomsday was created by killing uh, this creature over and over and then regenerating him or doing like the next basically forcing evolution, like oh, rapid evolution yeah. by just killing off the generation over and over and over. Oh. Um, so you have this creature who is extremely highly evolved and just full of boiling rage. <laughs> and just there's, there's been because different... you've been killed so many times. Yeah. And there's been like different versions of, 
different evolutions of Doomsday uh, and different like timelines even of Doomsday in the comics. But that was sort of like the initial uh, impact and the creation of Doomsday. Mm. So for them to link it to Krypton, to Kryptonian kind of thing is cool. Um, I think to involve Lex Luthor is potentially cool. You know, I mean, these movies have the tendency to just go back to the same villain over and over, which is why all three Fantastic Four movies are about Doctor Doom. Right. And it's like, okay, I mean, there are other villains, and yeah. you did a bad job with all three of these Doctor Dooms. It would be cool if you didn't. You know, it's like Superman. <laughs> does Superman not have any good villains beyond... Lex Luthor, you know, mm-hmm. and I guess the answer is probably not. Um, but as a as a viewer who is not eight years old, who's seen all the Superman movies, you know, it's like, all right. I mean, are you going to do any of those other like 500 things that you could potentially do? Or are we going to, you know, how about like Brainiac? How about, yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, there's five million Batman villains or Superman villains. And ba- at least the Batman movies, you know, have gone through the Joker, the Riddler, Two-Face, you know, we've, we've gotten yeah. to see a lot of different mm-hmm. characters come through. Yeah, I'm, I am definitely not on board with the Suicide Squad movie, by the way. No, that uh, looks messy as hell. Yeah, I mean, not only do I, not only am I just kind of sick of, like, everyone having their take on Joker, uh, but I think that the director of that movie is a terrible director who has made some abysmal fucking movies. Um one in particular is is called Sabotage, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. It might be on Netflix. Sabotage. Oh, the Sabotage. Uh, it's it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. If you want to, uh, listeners at home, if you want to sit through an hour and a half of like some really grisly shit, uh, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, um directed by David Ayer, uh, who also directed Fury, which I haven't seen, which I really have no desire to see. And he's directing the new Suicide Squad movie. Uh, It was... If I had to make a list of the worst movies of 2014, Sabotage would be the worst movie of 2014. It is a piece of fucking horseshit. Well, I'm just... I haven't seen that movie. I'm not going to now. Good. You wore me off. But (laughs) I'm not sure what the audience for... Suicide Squad is, you know, I mean, people like Harley Quinn, that's cool, but it's like, would you rather do that or do like another, like a decent Green Lantern movie or you have Green Arrow and you have the Flash on TV, like why not movies about those characters, you know, I guess, I don't know if the TV shows, I don't watch those shows, I don't know if they're going to lead into some kind of big screen version at some point because you know the just they're doing League. pretty well like they're as, yeah, as far as like, like yeah i think a lot of people really like them i um, mean i'm interested to see like the flash the flash is a great character yeah um i just haven't you know i'm sort of anti-superhero tv shows because i don't want to spend like 20 hours oh, on yeah. every single one you know i mean i haven't even watched the agents of shield show yet either no and i think that because i think the tendency and i think that you're already seeing this with with supergirl which i have now watched uh which i heard is pretty good is that all these shows um essentially they begin as sort of like style like stylistic uh comic book television but they get so wrapped up in plot that they eventually just become like you you can't you can't just find your way through it like that um you have to basically 
start from the beginning and, you know, watch 20, 25 hours of television. Which is who's got the fucking time to do that? Right. Well, which is fine, but it's, you know, if you read 10 comic books a month, you can probably zip through those guys in about two hours, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Uh, So it's a lot easier to keep up with 20 pages of comic book (laughs) a week or a month versus like, all right, here's the the five hours of Marvel or DC Universe you have to put in your brain every week. Like, right. I just don't have time for that. Well, it's it's one of those things where you, you wonder if it's going to reach sort of critical mass where it's just, and then people are just going to start getting sick of it and they'll maybe ease off making all of these all the time. Uh, but didn't wasn't there like a time when Survivor was ubiquitous and The Amazing Race was everywhere and everyone was like oh you know reality television it's gonna it's gonna start to wane you know right. it's yeah, maybe it's maybe like its moment yeah but it, the, but you know but still some of the most popular television is is reality tv you know right uh shout out master chef jr <laughs> the epitome that uh of reality television the television they're the the show that the type of show that all reality tv should aspire to i feel like we're it is the harbinger of the golden age of reality television. At, in mark my word, you can quote me on that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think like there was only one show canceled in this fall TV season, mm. um, which was the Chuck Bass from Gossip Girl. His his show about like God knows what. But anyway, um, wait, what? Wicked City, I think, was the show. Oh, was that canceled? It was canceled. No other shows get it did. So it's like this new paradigm where shows don't get canceled anymore. Uh, they do like the half season order or the full season order and they yeah, kind of yeah. see what's going on mm-hmm. and then they make a decision. Um, so you have a lot more shows, I think, getting a longer chance. Mm-hmm. And then you just also have so many more platforms and networks that like Amazon running man in the high castle and Netflix, yeah. obviously doing 5 million shows and, uh, TV just feels a lot more diffuse than it yeah. was. Mm-hmm. And so you don't necessarily have to worry about people getting sick of, say, sitcoms with white people in the 90s because now there's so many other things that you can watch. Yeah. Uh, not that people got sick of those sitcoms mm-hmm. at all. But, you know, it's just like if you don't want to watch a superhero show, then you won't, mm-hmm. you know. So right now it seems like the appetite exists for there to be like, three different DC hero TV shows. And I, however many Marvel ones are out now. Yeah. There's agents, agents of shield, agent Carter, is which it? I also haven't watched. And neither have I daredevil, daredevil, Jessica, Jessica Jones. Jones. And there's going to be more. There's going to be uh iron fist, iron fist. I think, uh, do, is there going to be a Luke cage TV show? I don't know. I hope so. Yeah. They definitely leave it. You know, I don't want to give anything away in Jessica Jones, but he plays a, an interesting role. Mm-hmm. And he his character is very much left open and where he came from. Um, there's some interesting setup for season two in Jessica Jones. And it's done like I thought in a pretty clever way. It's not it's just woven right into the plot and it doesn't come out of left field entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, I'm excited about what 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 direction that show will go next. And I'm excited about Batman and Superman. Punching each other really hard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's just going to be like big and silly and fun to watch. And yeah. I don't like Zack Snyder as a creative person. Like I don't yeah. like his 
vision i'll put it that way like his ideas about how things should be yeah but he can direct a good action sequence oh yeah yeah and the man knows how to wear sweatpants i feel like no matter where he is if you see a picture of Zack snyder he's wearing sweatpants as am i as we speak yeah we're both wearing we're both we're both wearing sweatpants right now well so that's one thing we have in common with Zack snyder yeah which i mean i he (laughs) he wore uh he was at the uh, um, the setting of the star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for Bob Kane's widow, or for Bob Kane, um, the creator of Batman, uh, I think. Yes. Yeah. And Bob Kane's dead. One of one of the creators of Batman. Okay. But the guy who was credited for a long yeah, time. Yeah. Okay. Um, Bob Kane is dead, so his widow was there. And, you know, she's dressed up, dressed up in like a nice pantsuit or whatever. Uh, she's an, an aged woman at this point. Um, and Zack Snyder was there and he was literally wearing just a T-shirt and sweatpants to this like ceremony. Oh, man. And all you can imagine is just like Bro. this guy probably wears sweatpants fucking everywhere. <laughs> right. right. Uh, but, to but, no boo. Does that feel like expensive sushi? <laughs> yeah but you know i don't know maybe maybe my my distaste for that is based in jealousy because yeah, i wish I mean, that i could we wear should... sweatpants everywhere right maybe we should be learning from his example i've been you know i've been thinking may, one of these days i'm gonna wear my sweatpants to work and see if anybody notices you know yeah the, i think the goal is to wear a color of sweatpants that are very non-sweatpants appropriate so wear something that's black or like dark dark speckled like gray yeah or dark navy yeah not to wear just like gray or blue you know yeah, yeah. no you can't make it obvious you gotta like try and sneak it in not to have like two little hangy the the hangy ropes for tightening yeah you gotta tuck it in <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah uh which but uh unofficial sponsor of pretty little grown men as all sponsors are yes unofficial is uniqlo uniqlo sweatpants which are we're both wearing uniqlo sweatpants it's true they're wonderful and you can get them on sale for extremely affordable prices mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so uniqlo i know that you're a big company um i hope you pay your workers well <laughs> yeah yeah well you say that uh i just finished reading uh the book no logo which is all about, you know, sweatshop labor and corporate branding in the nineties and how it's taking o- how it was taking over educational spaces and how these brands have became completely out of control and they're influencing government policy and all this like really intense, like global level shit. So it made me like think once again, okay, the stuff I'm buying, where is it coming from? Mm. Uh can I be more careful about it? Uh, do I have to buy everything from Patagonia, you know, and, you know, I mean, you just do your best, I guess. But yeah, I mean, it is, uh, it's, it's really, even now, I mean, there was an article the other day about, uh, B and H, uh, which sells photography gear and stuff, which I actually just ordered something from their site like a week before I read this article. Yeah. And they're having some strike because uh, the workers are trying to unionize. I don't think it's a strike. The union workers are trying to unionize because of like horrible sweatshop type labor factory conditions. And it's like in New York in 2015. And so this stuff is like, 
you can't really joke about it because it's super prevalent and super fucked up still. Uh-huh. Okay. So anyway, I, I also hope that Uniqlo uh, does not pay people, to, you know, a dollar a day to make these pants. Yeah, because they are they're wonderful pants. I like them a lot. I I think each of us own two pairs. I'm up to four. <laughs> What? So Uniqlo should raise. <laughs> Uniqlo should start, you know, working on their salary range. I think I'm here to support them. Yeah, well, Uniqlo, you've just just if you sponsor us, we'll stop speculating about the fact that you use slave labor. Okay, all right. Cool. <laughs> Contact us uh, at PLGM Podcast on Twitter. That's the best place to contact us. You can send us, uh, you know, whatever. You can send us a question or like a nice recipe. Or um, you can say something nice about us. We like to hear some nice things said about us. Speaking of nice things said about us, you should go on iTunes and star us and maybe write a little rating. Um, that would be really nice. It would be. In the spirit of the holiday season and giving and yeah. charitable acts, give yeah. us some stars on the old iTunes. And next week we'll come back and we'll talk about Pretty Little Liars related things. Uh, I think... Uh, what we should do is listen to this Lucy Hale album and then talk about it and maybe watch the, the Troy and Belisario horror movie. Talk about that. Sounds great. Um, and then uh, Dave and I also got, we finally got our Star Wars tickets. So a week from Friday, we're going to go see Star Wars. Is, is it really that? Yes, it's coming up December 18th. Yep. So a week from this Friday, we're going to go see Star Wars and we are definitely fucking talking about that do you think we're gonna have some opinions about uh, star wars probably very light yeah maybe get like five minutes worth of yeah opinion. we'll just do a quick quick podcast like <laughs> you know like we usually do just right. zip right through well thank you for hanging out with us uh this week and uh bearing with the music critic inside baseball but maybe you are interested in that and you think it's cool that we unveil a little bit of that stuff uh or not i don't know but yeah, uh, talk to us at PLGM Podcast on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, give us some iTunes ratings. And until next time, uh, high fidelity microphones, bitches. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> okay, we'll stick with that one for now. We'll come up with something better. <laughs>